broadcasting live from Beef Station as we rocket through the stars at the speed of sound. Take your protein pills, put your helmet on, and strap <laughs> in for episode 17. I'm Oscar. Andrew. Let's kick it off. What are we doing this week? Um, doing a couple of weird fucking movies, huh? Yeah, it's a weird fucking movie spectacular. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, a few obscure ones, so actually. We've been really... Every time we've been going to the cinema for the last few weeks, we've seen this trailer for this new Joaquin Phoenix movie camera that looks so weird, and we were looking forward to seeing it. And mm. then just this week, we're like, fuck, that's out. Yeah. And so we went to go see it. It's called You Were Never Here. Never Really Here. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> the title already. You were never really here. Written and directed by Lynn Ramsey, who I'd never really heard of. No. She's in her 40s. I think the only other film that she's really done that people might have heard of is We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yep. And I think it's. I think she's seriously only done sort of two or three major motion yeah, pictures. Yeah, uh, and that was based on a very well-known book as right. well. Um, so, uh, You Were Never Really Here, also based on a book. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's... Uh, she's... That's kind of her shtick is like. Oh, you mean we need to talk about Kevin was also best in a book? Yeah, that was right, a really, okay. really like hugely best-selling novel. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if like she kind of specializes in adapting novels to screenplays and then yeah. doing films well, based on that. So this, I mean, maybe yeah. <laughs> so, so this, it really felt like a small budget, little sort of project mm. film. It's got beautiful camera work throughout, beautiful music that really helps to establish this very specific tone that I'm sure we'll discuss in a moment. Yeah. Um, Joaquin Phoenix plays the lead role and he's fantastic. There's a young girl who plays the role of this child who I don't quite remember the name of the character or the actress, but she's good as well in it. And just the whole film from start to finish, I really enjoyed. And I said, if you could really see what she was, the director was trying to do in setting up the whole film and all the shots and everything. And I think it was fantastically done. And after we came out of the film, we thought we should really discuss it and that maybe we could pair it with Thoroughbreds, Mm. which is the film, if people remember from a few episodes ago, that you discussed for the Melbourne International Film Festival as being one of your highlights. And that's directed and written by someone as well. Corey Finley. (laughs) As most, most, films it was written and directed by someone <laughs> yeah, exactly well, all i Very mean thinly. is like it's one of those films where it's written and directed by one person as oh like that's a project mean. kind of yes thing that's correct yeah where yep. someone clearly had some sort of passion project mm. that they're getting off the ground and the whole film is sort of united by some sort of unified vision maybe yeah to sort of yeah. <laughs> really go off the yeah deep it's end not part of it. a franchise but it's also not quite as big of of like a you know kind of like an independent hollywood script it's they're just like small budget yeah um no big business movies exactly yeah um sort of i guess this is kind of like big art house cinema yeah, because we were going to say, like, oh, it's an indie film, but, like, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I think we were looking it up on Wikipedia before. This is the You Were Never They've Really Here. they both got, like, four production companies. Yeah, exactly. Them, so. But I, I, don't, I don't think we know enough about the, the process. I think in the case of You Were Never Really Here, it sounds like we don't know where the funding might have come from. It was then shopped around at film festivals and yeah, things, we and eventually budget, some, stu- some yeah. studio bought the rights. So I think in this mm. case, it's an Amazon Studios production, but I think it's, that... That's, they just distributed it. Yeah, so yeah. Amazon would have bought the rights to this film like after it had been done and dusted. Yeah. Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead fame mm. does the film score for this uh, film. Yeah, I'm assuming that, to, like, that he just did the power. soundtrack, but it would surprise me if he wasn't involved in more. Like, we can talk about the sound a little bit later, but yeah. sound was a huge contributor to this film. Oh, it was fantastic. And I could have easily seen Lynn Ramsey uh, sort of approaching Johnny Greenwood about this and just basically being like, hey, can you oversee all of the sound in this movie? Because yeah. so much of this film was like, Foley, just non-diegetic or diegetic sound. All the sound like, effects and like almost yeah. collages of sound when they're in cities or countryside yeah. or wherever they yeah, are yeah, yeah. that really sort of add to the whole 
mood of the whole thing. Well, should we talk about You Were Never Really Here first? I think so, We're yeah. getting more into it? Okay, yeah. cool. All right. Um, well, I guess we can start off with the... Uh, well, do you want to start off with the sound then? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I thought that sound was a huge part of this film. Yeah, so you got um, one of the main you know, creative you know forces where, behind Radiohead. You know, films where like you sort of just don't notice the sound the whole movie. Yeah, this was the opposite of that. This was one of those movies where sound is constantly. I, I would say almost like um, a Quiet Place levels yeah. of like sound factoring in. Yeah, right. You know? um, so I think that. So one of the main things I noticed was that so the film, if you start by summarizing what it's kind of yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix plays this kind of hitman, gun for hire, mercenary thug type character mm. that um, is hired out by people to do various shady, illegal type shit. Yeah, and in this case, he's hired by a senator to yeah. track down these gangsters, and it's kind of like a missing persons type case. Yeah, and that's sort of the first half of the film, and. It's not really, I think, about that case for the first half of the film. You really sort of... It's, it's more of like a, a window into Joaquin Phoenix's character's it's emotions. It's a big character study. Yeah. yeah. And so, he's this sort of anxious, nervous wreck. He might have some sort of PTSD yeah, I think type we issue get from the military. F- kind of fl- yeah, we get flashbacks that... I, yeah. I got the feeling he was one of those... It's a pretty common narrative that people go to war um, in the yeah. US Army and then come back and they become a cop. Yeah. So, I think he was a deployed service person and then had a couple of really rough cases as a cop. So, pretty clearly... Yeah. like. Like some real severe PTSD yeah. going and on. The film really goes to great lengths to sort of establish his sort of anxious PTSD nightmare ridden daily life. He has regular he has flashbacks. All these flashbacks of sort of him being beaten as a child, this traumatic upbringing he's had, and the flashbacks to his time in, it looks like the Middle East or something, yeah. and traumatic Generic experiences as a background. cop. And so now he's sort of turned to the sort of life of shady crime. Yeah, lives with and himself. So- he's a social kind of, he, he uh, kind of excludes himself from greater society. He lives with yeah. His, well, he lives with lives his, his like elderly mum who yeah. he sort of takes care of. And the film's soundtrack, so both the sound effects throughout the film and the music, go to great lengths to really highlight the sort of anxious, disjointed nature of his life by having music that sort of reflects that. So you have music that has lots of really strange rhythms and time signatures. Mm. There was a lot of times where there'd be these extended shots of Joaquin Phoenix calmly you know, driving along and doing something, and there'd be little sort of loops of music that they were built upon. But the loop would constantly change, like every couple bars. Yeah. And so it would sound very similar, but it would constantly change and never rest. And it would always be moving. And it would kind of get you all tense because you'd sort of feel like at the start, like, oh, maybe this song that's playing is kind of calm and sort of lulling you into a trance. But the more you listen to it, the more you'd realize it was sort of changing and niggling and you mm. could never, re- it never really quite stayed still. And a lot of like hypertense music style, yeah. like plucked strings and that sort of like really staccato um, kind of rhythmic stuff. Like yeah. it was very good at using the um, using the 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 sound and particularly the the music to build yeah. tension. And yeah, one one of the establishing shots is showing him like beating the crap out of this guy and then hiding his body in like a bin or something. And so, but it cuts between multiple different shots and multiple different scenes. And the one song plays throughout this sort of four minute scene. And every time the scene cut the song would kind of change mood and develop yeah, and change in a different way. Song. But it was the same yeah. song the whole way through. As the scene was cutting, the same song will be playing and sort of changing and developing and yeah. twisting and turning in all these crazy ways. And so you could never really sort of settle. The whole film and all the sound was really kind of restless and really Yeah, unsettling. that's a good word for it. Yeah. yeah restless. And so I feel like 
often I, you listen you hear a lot of people that like like listening to film soundtracks when they're at work or whatever <laughs> I can't imagine this would be the sort of film soundtrack yeah. I'd want to listen to I tried <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you were saying yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be able to listen to this anywhere no. other than within the context of this film this because it really film very well. it really complements the film really yep. well yep. and I think it sort of adds to it and it's part one of, of those it, greater than the sum of its parts type thing yeah definitely. exactly and and I think that um, in, in this case like the the soundtrack goes really as you were saying hand in hand with yeah. the editing of this movie mm-hmm. which this movie would have been a fucking nightmare to edit oh yeah 100%. because there are so many the way that editing is used in this film is not normal it's like it doesn't just follow <laughs> kind of a uh, you know, it, it's it, the point of it is not to just show you one cohesive scene and then another cohesive scene and then another well, cohesive scene. It's the point of it is to have a scene yeah. with fuckloads of stuff intercut with flashbacks to his childhood, flashbacks up. to his career, yeah. flashbacks to like previous parts of the movie and all that. And when it's not doing those flashbacks thing, because that would yeah. get tiring if it was all the time. So it's not. It yeah. just has episodes of that. But the other parts of the movie. Um, still, the editing is is strongly kind of like disrupted yeah. and uh, and and uh, chopped, you know. Yeah. Um, and not in a way that makes it uncomfortable to watch, but just in a way that really reflects the mood uh, yeah. or, or the experience of Joaquin Phoenix's character. <laughs> I feel like we're making the film said fucking weird. Just to be clear, there is a very specific storyline that follows throughout the whole film oh, yeah. where you know exactly it's what's going clear. on the whole time. Yeah. It's not one of those weird films. It's not like of, Memento or anything. Yeah. It doesn't skip or, back and forth in time, really. Yeah, exactly. And it's not where, like, nothing happens. I feel like if we sort of start out talking about this arty film, you know there's those films we're talking about where, like, nothing really happens. No, it's, shit happens. Yeah. In this shit movie. happens. It's, like, very specifically, Walking Phoenix sits down with a guy who's like, I want you to do this. And I don't think yeah. I really want to talk about the plot too much, only because it's a bit of a... There's some spoiler type spoilers stuff. later in, in like, yeah. a sealed but, section. Like, but, like, he's... Yeah. He's looking for this person. He deals with this gang of thugs and criminals yep. in New York City, I think it is. And as he sort of sure. tracks down um, these people and w- gets like further and further embedded into this crime ring. And there's all this other sort of weird city politics type stuff that happens. Yeah. Um, Without going into too much specifics, the main complication of all of that, I guess, is that something, something happens and he gets burned um, in like a, you know... In a metaphorical in a hitman, sense. In a hitman <laughs> sense. Is it like he's, yeah. he gets, you know, kind of blacklisted and, and um, yeah. everyone's against him now. Exactly. And so, you he's know? like way in over his depth, which adds to this anxiety thing. Yeah. Um, and so, the story was great. And I really liked it. It was like, because mm. I feel like often there are art films where you clearly just see that someone got a great soundtrack and a cool camera and just wanted to fuck around for two hours. Yeah. And you're like, well, I mean, I could definitely see the merits in this, but as a- piece of entertainment fuck you but yeah, this was like this, this wasn't an experiment kind it of was, like a detective a story piece. action kind of film yeah that really made a great effort to be something better than just like some fucking action movie about this crazy guy being yeah definitely up. it yeah. was a lot it yeah i can't it feel it had the strength of it had the strength of like brutal action films yeah but it also had the strength of really well directed and shot Art house cinema. Absolutely. Um, it kind of reminded me of Drive. If yeah, I had to, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of what other films I could compare it to. It's kind of like a Drive kind of film. I thought Drive meets Fight Club. Because at, at one point it had um, oh, yeah. one of those like grindy electronic tracks to it mm. um, that reminded me a lot of the um, one of the main themes from, yeah, from Fight Club. Um, but it doesn't have as much of that kind of interact- interaction 
as as Fight Club does. A yeah. lot of this movie is, um, and I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about Joaquin Phoenix's performance because so much of this movie is just him. He's one of the greatest actors. Man. Oh fuck, he's amazing, and he's oh. done a Christian Bale in this movie where he's really fucked his body up. To, he looks um, like homeless. <laughs> yeah, but not just homeless. He's put on like quite a bit of weight, but he's got that stature yeah, where he's like really is. heavy set. But it's clear that underneath, it, he looks like a um like like a heavyweight boxer, where it's like yeah. he's got a lot of weight on him, but also like he's fucking ripped. There because- are lots of scenes where he's he's taking the shirt off because he's in the shower or whatever, and he looks kind of lumpy. Yeah, it almost looks like he's got like a, a a birth defect or something. Like his yeah. body looks asymmetrical. <laughs> this it's- is just us. It turns out this wasn't any Christian Bale shit. Walking <laughs> Phoenix just has a fucked body, and we're just shaming. I don't him for know. Two I, I I was but, yeah. literally trying to figure out whether or not they had intentionally done that. Or whether or let's not- double down. He looks like a model that's been badly stuffed. Yeah, no, he, that's a that's not a bad description for it. Like a yeah. doll where the cotton wool's been stuffed in weird places. Like yeah. at one point, it, yeah, he's got his shirt off, and like he, the the muscle development is clearly not symmetrical. Yeah, it's fucked. Um, like one of his pecs is huge, and the other one is kind of like it looks weakened. Yeah, and he like at one point, you know, he's like raising his arms behind his head. And like he's got, he's clearly got just the sh- fucking huge biceps, but it looks like almost like he can't quite put his arms behind his head properly. Like, yeah, he's he's physically odd, and it really complements his role in the movie to just be yeah, hundred like, percent. He he operates like I guess okay, getting away from his physical performance, which is great. Yeah, his, his emotional performance is like he's just really dislocated from his surroundings he's really disenfranchised yeah. he's clearly not been taken care of by systems that have taken advantage of him yeah and so originally he seems like a hard ass kind of hardened criminal type yeah, guy yeah because he's really quiet that's one of the things that he's, he barely speaks yeah. in this movie and then the more the film develops and the more the story sort of goes through and all these, these beats sort of happen the more you realise that he's sort of Oddly childlike and sentimental at times as well. Yeah, it can be. Like he's he sort eats of- a there's um when he's meeting with the senator, the senator has like a box of uh, no like a bowl of is it gummy bears? Like jelly beans. So yeah, I, jelly, I read like this jelly down. bellies. There's this um bowl of jelly beans that he's sort of tossing and playing with as he's going yeah. and like looking for the green ones because he likes the green ones. Yeah, and the senator's like trying to have a conversation with him and he's like oh, no green ones and he's like muttering think, to himself. Yeah. and then like three sentences of the senators later, he's like. I found one. And a green one. And he like crushes it. And he, yeah, it crushes <laughs> it. And it looks so weird. It's yeah. That okay. So just as an example of like what this movie is like, you get an extreme close up on it on the jelly bean being crushed, crushed. and it looks really bizarre. But it's super interesting to watch. There's that is so great, many. That is a great example of what this movie is like to watch. So for the camera work, there's so yeah. much like close up camera work type shit in this film. A where, lot of like, city setting as well, where yeah. you will get like just scenes of urban life, like, a, you know, the, the undergirding of a bridge as, like, traffic races over the top of it. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of great, like, it's, like, macro shots or, like, super close-ups yeah. with a really shallow depth of field, brilliantly yeah, kind of... Yeah, right. Very sort of naturally lit-looking shots, um, which is kind of hard to describe. Like, brilliant shots where someone just... It seems like someone would be like, wouldn't it be cool to have a shot like this? And... um I don't know whether you can sort of say that it adds to the character development to be like, oh, maybe it's his perspective about how like hyper-focused he is on like weird shit or whatever. Um, I think that comes into play with the other film that we were going to talk, gonna talk yeah, about Yeah, I think it reflects his internal state a lot. It's yeah. like he, he tends to kind of, yeah, find find beauty or satisfaction or, or trauma in 
tiny, insignificant things. Yeah, and I think uh, so. The, the trauma stuff comes back to one of the main plot points of this film, where throughout the film, a lot of the things that happens reminds him of his past and reminds him of his time in the military, and yeah. you get a flashback of that, or significantly, his childhood. So he lives with his mother. He gets a lot of flashbacks to moments in life where he has like an abusive father who's beating his mum, and like he, she's hiding under the he, table, and, and shit. he as a child is like hiding in his bedroom, whimpering, and yeah. you get a lot of that, and it sort of cuts between him, him as an adult and him as a child in these same kind of fetal position type um, type poses and there's a whole sequence where he's trying to hold his breath with his head in a plastic bag yeah that happens multiple times breathing, he's asphyxiating himself like breathing with his head in a plastic bag and like seeing how long he can last and there's this counting motif that happens throughout the film yeah. where he's sort of counting and trying to see how long he can last and then there's a lot of self-harm type stuff where you see these scars all over his body and it That's cuts right. between him as a child and him as an adult and so there's, there's a lot of stuff throughout the film that calls attention to his childlike nature that reminds you of this shit throughout the whole film. Mm. Um, so, the, the jelly beans thing kind of got that for me. It was like, it's like him acting quite childlike and you sort of realise that maybe he's still lingering on that and that he has, has trouble separating memory from reality. Yeah. Which is one of the main things that he sort of fucked him up. And so, I guess, like, getting into, just in terms of the performance and the emotional kind of uh, overarching plot of the movie, um, the... We're getting into a little spoiler territory on this one. Yeah. Um, I don't so- know how people would watch this. Because I think like it was almost out of the cinema when it started, when we went to go see it. Yeah. Um, I think it's definitely worth seeing. Yeah. And I think that even if we spoil plot points, it was such a beautiful experience. Cinema- cinema- Cinematographically. Cinematographically? <laughs> Cinematographically. It's one of the words where you need to know what you're going to say mm. five syllables before you start saying words. it. Because otherwise you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> Cinematographically speaking, yeah, because <laughs> you had the run-up. Beautiful experience. The, the the music really adds to it. I think that yeah. even if we're going to spoil the story to this film, by the end of it, it's it still would, worth seeing. It would almost not detract from it knowing what was going to happen because yeah. so much of this film is just an audiovisual experience. The story's compelling, and it's not Absolutely. like nothing happens. Yeah. But it, if you know the story, it's still worth seeing. So yeah. I think we could probably get into the weeds of discussing. Yeah significant plot points of the film because there's a lot of great stuff later in the film I wanted to talk about that I think is really interesting and really enjoyable that yeah. might be plot spoilery. Absolutely. That's the longest spoiler so all now, all Yeah, time. right? Welcome back having watched we, the we film. We didn't just explain that it was going to be spoilers. We justified why we, <laughs> <laughs> we would spoil. Let me define the word spoiler for yeah. you listeners. What is a spoiler? <laughs> One, a plastic or metal beam across the rear of a vehicle... <laughs> Which affects its aerodynamic. <laughs> All right. Let's um, talk about Downforce, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a movie called Downforce? There's definitely a shitty 80s action movie called Downforce. I'll watch that. Well, we got to do that one. Join week. us next week with Downforce. All right. Um, so, the the main uh, task that he's given, which is rescuing the senator's daughter. The senator's yeah. daughter's name is Nina. Okay. So he, she is the daughter of Senator Votto. Nina has been captured by these thugs who run like a child sex. Real... F- Full fucking child like prostitution yeah. house. Type These guys thing. aren't fucking around. Like, uh, which yeah, it's just it's distressing. Which, it's really fucked. Which, which brings me to one of my favorite sequences in the film, where he breaks into. He works out where this this sort of 
sex the ring old boys house is. Yeah. So he gets his hammer and he breaks. He, Which is he, actually before this scene, that's established as the meth, the modus operandi of him. He <laughs> he's a hammer dude. Yeah. <laughs> he, he uses but he, like, hammers. Goes to buy a hammer every time. Yeah. Well, you've got to get rid of the other one. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Um, hammers are fucking expensive too, by the way. You know, yeah, you can pay like upwards of seventy dollars for a good forged hammer. I did not know that. Went into Bunnings the other day. That sounds it's expensive. extraordinarily expensive. Yeah, exactly. It's very fucking expensive. Yeah, cold work, the steel, and a hammer, mate. It's, uh, you know, yeah. it's a very time-intensive process. I'm actually surprised they still forge hammers. Well, yeah, it's about the, I mean, the crystalline structure oh. of the metal and about <laughs> the, the various properties that you imbue upon it based on the, the forming process. So, for example, if you cast the metal for the hammer, for example, you get, like, quite a soft metal. And then the tempering is what... Hardens it yeah, up, yeah, yeah. and then if you cold work the steel, you don't have the problem of like the heat softening the metal up. Um, oh. Not from like a melting point of view, but just like if you if you like sort of like melt the metal into the the mold of like a hammer and then let it set, the metal itself once it's solid is still going to be like quite soft and like ductile. But oh. whereas if you like cold work the metal, and you just get like a solid block of metal, at least you fucking whack it into the shape of a hammer. Then it's going to be quite hard because it won't have changed on a molecular level. Literally, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Welcome to Hammer Chat. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Anywho. Can you tell that one of us is an engineer? <laughs> <laughs> he br- he breaks it to um, thanks to so, Bug, thanks to Bug who's listening right now and explaining yeah. to me why every single bit of that was wrong because he listened <laughs> yeah. in that class. He's like, no, you fucking idiot! That's not how it. Oh, My- so frustrating. We've had it feedback from a couple of people who yeah. know us in real life that think that the worst bit about this podcast. Shut up. The worst bit about this podcast <laughs> is that they can't participate in conversation that we're having. <laughs> I reckon, yeah, yeah Bug is yeah. shitting himself with rage. My friend Bug. Like, who, no, I, who, they're fucking wrong. Who actually listened in that class and whose job is metalworking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of our listeners is sorry. a metalworker. That's fucking great. S- sorry to dox you on the podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> he lives in uh, Scandinavia. So <laughs> go find him. <laughs> So, he breaks into this, like, child sex ring house, and he's got his hammer, and the whole action sequence showing, like, him going room to room and beating the shit out of all the security guards and all, like, the the uh, patrons is shown through, like, security cam footage. Like, literally all of it, and it doesn't always capture him. Like, it looks like- It's not always focused. It'll be like a- Yeah, it's like literally a security cam. Like, it looks like they use like 720p black and white cameras. And there's like- It'll be like a static- There's like three or four of them. Yeah. And it'll be like a static shot of the room and over in a corner through a doorway you'll see Joaquin Phoenix beating the shit out of some naked guy. And sometimes it won't- (laughs) And sometimes you'll be hearing that but it won't show what's going on. It'll show like an empty room. It'll just show like a corpse on the stairs or something. Yeah. Because there's only so many security cameras and that's how- What you're doing is you're actually watching that moment through the perspective of someone watching Watching the security cameras, yeah. not through this omniscient audience. And so that was my favorite. so that first scene. So there's two sequences it's in so the film cool. where he goes to a building and fucking clears it. And so this first one, you basically, even though it's not all the time, basically every shot is him beating a guy, beating a guy up, and you yeah, watch yeah, these yeah. guys fall to the ground. There's a second sequence towards the end of the film where he has to break into this like large mansion house to um, rescue someone, and that's kind of his mo- his, his deal. Like he goes in and like finds. <laughs> abducted children and so yep. he goes into this like mansion house I don't house know if it's to find this children. child it's whatever it is yeah, he like anyway, finds people he's not yet. like a hitman. no like he, 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 he locates stolen it's kind of something you find out throughout the rest of the film his job is a bit more honourable than that he sort of yeah. finds kidnapped people and rescues them yeah. and so he's breaking into this like giant mansion house and instead of doing what it did before where it shows you him beating up everyone every single shot 
is him leaving frame right after he's beaten a guy up. Yeah. So every single shot is a dead body on the ground and him walking out of frame, yeah. which is so funny. It's and so it was good. a really nice, refreshing it's, way of showing yeah. the same montage because you, you get you get the idea of what he was doing because you've, you've like, literally been watching it. Someone's be this head been caved yeah. in with a fucking hammer. Yeah. And so it was a nice beat to sort of like it was like a tour of this beautiful mansion house and also kind of an action sequence with no action in it at all. Yeah, because it was like cut body cut body cut body and then walking phoenix is like at his destination i felt like that kind of echoed again like a lot of this film is a character study and i felt like that kind of echoed his perspective yeah where killing someone with a hammer is kind of the same no matter where you're doing it (laughs) as we all know (laughs) he was just like he's done it so many times now that it's just neutralized to him so he's just kind of like he, he he'll just go through and and you know yeah he's killing people but as soon as he's killed that person the more important thing, i.e. where the camera should be focusing yeah. on, is, right, where next? Like where do I need to go? What do I need to find? <laughs> yeah. What am I looking for? So what the camera's actually doing is tracking him while he's looking for shit. Yeah, exactly. Rather than tracking him killing people for the satisfaction of yeah. it. Because that's not why he's there. If he didn't have to kill anyone, you can tell that he really wouldn't. Yeah. It's just that he needs to find something and the camera only shows what him looking for that thing. Which was, again... Really, really cool. So this that, was a very yeah. different action movie. So those break-in scenes were my some of my favourite scenes in the film. If we're talking yep. about specifically really favourite scenes, um, my other favourite scenes. So we talked, we sort of hinted before our spoiler warning about how he sort of gets into the weeds. So he thinks he's just rescuing this this young. He girl. smokes a lot of dope. Yeah, <laughs> he really gets into the weeds. <laughs> um, and he rescues this young girl and gets her back, and then she's immediately like kidnapped again by the same criminals who get her back, and it's this giant the sex ring that goes like all. All the way to the top and <laughs> yeah and um that's a movie i want to see um and uh all these sort of thugs and gangsters are going after him constantly and yep. so one of the best scenes in the whole film talking about like recalling his childhood and everything is like throughout the film when the radio is playing and there's no score it's playing all this like old like 50s late 50s early 60s like doo-wop pop kind of stuff mm. like if you think of like uh the song earth angel that plays in back to the future it's not that but it's that kind of shit yeah um that sort of plays out the whole thing which i guess kind of reminds him of his childhood because a lot of the flashbacks to his childhood his mum really young in the sort of like 50s 60s looking house and all the all the sort of attire and all that and so it sort of recalls this traumatic mo- this is beautiful soulful kind of pop music that recalls this sort of traumatic moment in his life. And it plays throughout the whole thing as this like constant restless like reminder. Like a motif. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a bit where the gangsters break into his house and um, kill one of the people in the house. And F- River- uh, Joaquin Phoenix busts in and shoots them and kills them. And there's this gangster guy, it's a quite young, like sort of early 30s, late 20s mobster that's just broken into his house, is bleeding out on his kitchen floor. I thought Walking that, Phoenix so- lies down next to him and sings along to the They're both, angel yeah. baby soul and, song and that's playing on the radio. That scene takes place over probably like seven, or I felt at least a few hours. Like oh, this right. guy <laughs> takes a long time to die. Yeah. And you see Joaquin Phoenix's character lies down next to him. He knows they both know he's gonna die. Holds his hand. He holds his hand and, and, and sings, sings songs, songs, with, songs him with him as he's dying. Which is part of that so interesting. Oddly sensitive, childlike part of uh I think River Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix's character. Yeah. That is really compelling in the film. And the more it opens up, the more you realize like, 
oh, this guy's not like some psycho or like some hitman who like gets off on this. This mm. is like all he has left. It's his last re- option in life is to do this shit. Yeah. Um. And like maybe and he maybe he just wants a normal life, and he's or, or just, like reconciliation or something. Because yeah. you you know you uh you you do get fed little. Um, Hints that he maybe blames himself for the death of a child in, in, in the Middle East or wherever thing, it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and, and so, like, maybe he's come back for some sort of reconciliation because yeah. you also get... Uh, I won't give away the, the whole plot, but you get indications that he's sort of, in his in his institutional roles, he's kind of failed to rescue people. Yeah. And this is the way that it can work. Exactly. And um, but, yes, you really feel like... It's like, fuck, man, maybe this is, like, all he's got left. And it's not like he gets off on this. It's like, this is... He's just, he just, he's just like fuck. He's very good at it, yeah. and is yeah, not a stable individual. Exactly. But, um, yeah. um, also, just want to mention that the uh, young teen that is in this movie, um, Nina, who plays the abducted, yeah, girl, um, played by Ekaterina Samsonov, who is a, a New Yorker. She's the one that makes Russian the suitcases, descent. right? Nice. She's actually 15 years old. Um, wow, she's really she good. Does a really, really good job. In terms of yeah. playing like a comatose, out of it young woman, mm. it's, like, it's, hard, yeah. it's hard to know whether she's a good actor or whether that, <laughs> or not. Because like they picked the, an odd the part she had person. to play was like inherently because of the experiences her character had gone yeah. through, so icy and so like yeah. disjointed. So I guess actually she just plays like I don't know, like this. <laughs> Traumatized real doll yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, because she is sexualized yeah. the parts in the movie explicitly because yeah. um, sometimes you get like hypotheticals of her in certain situations that are clearly like in in that sexual abuse setting. It's, so. it's part of that like weird fantasy PTSD nightmare dream yeah. like flashbacks and fantasies that Walking Phoenix's character has all the time. Yeah. And it's it's a real weird dreamlike movie to and, watch. And then the dynamic between them becomes kind of strange where sometimes yeah. she overtakes him as the far more mature and pragmatic figure. Yeah. Where, like, he kind of feels like he's kind of stuck in a rut. Yeah. And she's the one who sort of says, okay, buddy, come on. Yeah. Work with me here. Let's let's get out of this. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. So, um, I, I guess, like, I don't know if there's too much else to say about it. But, I don't but, think so. Um, I think my final favorite scene was the lake scene. Yeah, okay. Where this is worth a mention. It's yeah. another it's it's part of this um he, he's he's mourning for the death of one of the characters in the film mm. and he's burying them in the lake. And I thought it was kind of fitting as a, a summary of his character and the fucked situation that he's in and the way he sort of ruined his life in that all he wants is a normal life and even in this like deeply personal, sentimental sort of funeral he has to hold for himself, um, he has to bury this person in a garbage bag at the bottom of a lake. Yeah. Um and you sort of see um, this like the angel baby sort of 50s, 60s doo-wop pop song sort of swells up and they're both sort of like underwater in the lake and there's all these beautiful close-up shots of like his hair like floating through the water. And It's a really good scene. The music in that scene actually reminded me a lot of the music in the film Her, which is yeah, also, also a Joaquin Walking Phoenix, Phoenix yeah. film and also has a fantastic score. Oh, fuck, go see that. that the, most of the score in that was Arcade Fire. Yeah. Also a really, really great Really, film. really good film. Do you reckon, um, like, Joaquin Phoenix's Rider is, like... I'll do the movie, but you got to get a fucking great You band. must have a beloved indie rock band score the music. <laughs> to do the music. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything. I feel like we've said everything and nothing about this film. Really worth seeing. It's it's so difficult. Part of the, Exactly the reason for that is that it's so difficult to talk about and summarize. Yeah. 
because it's so difficult to lock down what this movie is about yeah. because it's about a lot of stuff. But really, I think it's just about representing a single character's journey in an extremely odd situation from an extremely odd perspective cinematically. And this role and it does that very forced well. into. Also, it feels like no one ever said no to the lighting specialist <laughs> and the cinematographer because this, yeah. this movie does literally everything that you can do with lighting. Yeah. Like, it has, it has like, neon-lit scenes of every colour. It has, like, almost black and white stuff. It has, like... It does have black and white stuff for the yeah. fucking security cameras. Yeah. It, it does long extended cut tracking shots. It does hyper-edited, like, rapid-cut footage. Like, it's, it's like a... It would have been so much a, fun to make. Oh, yeah. I reckon... Yeah. It's, yeah, it seems like these guys just really thought they were... They didn't. They weren't trying to shoot for any particular like Hollywood aspiration. It was like, yeah. no, we're gonna make this cool little fucking movie. Yeah, it's awesome. I reckon yeah. in terms of new films that we've seen for this podcast, this is one of my favorites we've seen so far. Yeah, I really. Uh, I mean, from the trailer, which actually was, I, I didn't want to watch too much of because I felt like I would spoil it. But yeah. the trailer was probably fairly representative of it as yeah. a movie. Um, and from the trailer, it got me excited about it, and I decided I'd go see it. And I also got it. nothing out of the trailer as well. You didn't no, really didn't spoil, spoil anything, it, which, which is a fantastic yeah. trailer. It gave you like a t- like tonally hints to what you'd expect. Exactly, which is um, a perfect trailer in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, and I I really am so glad that I got a chance to go and see it. So it's Absolutely. only probably from when we released this, it's only probably going to be in some cinemas. Maybe so. for a little while longer. I think so we started at Dendi. Probably make time to go see this one. It's not like yeah. one of those huge, big, culturally significant things, but it's you just could, a really yeah, fucking good movie. You could rent it when it comes out on DVD and still get something out of it, but it was a really nice experience film. I think. It's I nice took my to partner, who's not a huge movie buff to it, and yeah. she said she really enjoyed it. Yeah, so cool. I think this is an everyman film as well. Yeah. If I had to... Um, we, we were talking about before about trying to rate films in terms of like comparing them to other films. I haven't really had a lot of time to digest this film and really sort of think about where I'd place it, but I definitely think that for a while Drive was one of my favourite films in yeah. terms of like cinema- cinematography and um, integrating a strange action thriller plotline into quite an arty film that also has a great soundtrack yep. and in this way I would most liken it to Drive sure. not tonally but in terms of quality and kind of the spirit of the film if that yeah, makes yeah, any yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. I really thought it was a fantastic film so this is better than Drive you think? oh yeah oh uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I'd probably put them on equal footing. Okay. I reckon if you like Drive, I reckon this is worth seeing. Cool. Well, I guess moving on to the other movie for this week then, which yeah. was, again, one of the ones that I saw at the Myth 2018, uh, Thoroughbreds. Thoroughbreds. Yeah. So this was um, similar in scale to um, You Were Never Really Here. Yeah. Just a little kind of borderline indie movie made by a director, Corey Finley, who yeah. hasn't done a huge amount of shit beforehand. It's a film festival little film in the same yeah. way as... By the way... This was his basically his directorial debut, actually. He has basically yeah. done nothing. Absolutely impossible to find in Australia. I think it'll be easier <laughs> yeah. to find heroin yeah. than it will be to find this film in Australia. Yeah, so um, for, for, folks that, uh, <laughs> for folks that live near us... If you would like to watch this film... Email us. Email us. (laughs) And we will let you know where you may be able to find someone with a USB of it. Yeah. Um, Because it's... Personally for me... Maybe we'll set up a geocache somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where you can go. 
plug a device in and we'll sticky tape it to the antenna on top of Telstra Tower yeah. and you can climb up there and grab it. And I don't feel the seriously, bit that would be easier that. than the fucking hoops I had to jump through yeah. to get this film. Yeah. Andrew was like, oh, yeah, so we're going to do this film and maybe let's do Thoroughbreds as well. All right, see you on Saturday. <laughs> Meanwhile, my whole Saturday. And Oscar's week became immediately oh ruined. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Tom Cruise is going through. Jesus. It was, it was, oh. Yeah, you had to get into a massive, like, tank of water <laughs> where it was going around 50 million times a minute and almost wept. hold your breath yeah. three minutes. <laughs> I almost wept with joy when, spoiler alert, the file on my computer played and also the audio played. It wasn't the, just The picture like... didn't jump. It wasn't just like some fucking like- a message from the AFP saying you've been arrested. <laughs> <laughs> some video camera pointing at a, at a cinema screen. Oh. oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, even if we do say, go see this, fuck you. You'll never be able to. Well, come see us, and then you can see it. Because um, this one's honestly, like, guy. as a personal recommendation, this is exactly the kind of movie that I really get into. Yeah. Um, where it's just, again, like, small scale, kind of a character study, really, really well made. Yeah. I, en- um, I enjoyed it, but I think that, I don't know, maybe I'd psych myself up for it. I, I enjoyed it. I think it was fine. Mm. But I, I think I definitely enjoyed... Yeah, I, th- I definitely enjoyed the the other one more. Uh, I I really 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 thought it was great. I guess let's get into talking about what it's about. Yeah, um, which is similar. Or, uh, I suppose it's a little less disjointed than you were never really here, but it's similarly difficult to kind of summarize With, what this movie is about. It's, it's pretty coherent, and it's probably probably helps that it doesn't have the crazy nightmare <laughs> PTSD flashbacks yeah, that the other yeah, one yeah. has. I mean, it seems like you you summarized it. When we do in the film festival episodes, yeah. if you give me a good old, good old college try, it's kind of about these sort of um, friends from high school who have been reunited a few years later to sort of help study for these SAT exams in, in America. It's in this sort of super, super rich part of upper crust as fuck, upper class part of America. So yep. they both come from really rich families. One of them's kind of prim and proper, and the other one's kind of a bit rougher side of the tracks, a mm. bit like doesn't really want to do what her parents wanted to. And they've sort of been reunited a few years after they sort of drifted apart as friends to sort of study for these SATs. Yep. And you get a real window into their lives as like part of this sort of spoilt upper class. It's these two young women, both actresses are really good in it. Um, and it's mostly about sort of the family dynamics Within between these two characters, and about sort of the problems that one of them has with their step with her stepfather, who's this sort of rich stepfather, and her mum, and the problems that this girl has. She's got this weird condition where she doesn't feel any emotions at all, and so she's constantly one of them is a Yeah, and so she's constantly sort of pretending, like in a Dexter-like way admits to this other girl about how she's sort of pretending all the time and sort of yeah. has taught herself to cry on cue and like you you catch yourself like faking smiles in the mirror and all this sort of stuff. So it's 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 not about anything specific without getting too spoilery, mm. but there's a specific plot they have about Well, it's about family problems. It's a very specific thing, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good way to summarize it. Yeah. But very um, similarly, a very arty kind of film, lots of great shots. Lots of great use so of sound. So well put together. Really Holy good fuck. actresses. Really I, good writing. I, I think in the same way as the cinematography and the sound were a feature of the other one, I think the writing was a great feature of this. It's very funny. And very the acting. S- very witty. As well. As you said, both. So, yeah. the, predominantly, there are two characters that play the vast or kind of get the the vast majority of the screen time. Yeah. Um, one of them is Amanda. She's the psychopathic one. Mm-hmm. She's played by Olivia Cook. 
She's the one from kind of the rough side of the tracks who's been sent yeah. to study with her. When you say rough side of the tracks, do you mean that she's from a lower socioeconomic background? Well, you know what? No, I'm using that phrase wrong. I just mean she's a bit of a badass and just doesn't really do what her yeah, parents okay, wanted to. Yeah, because both of her family, like both of their families are, are really rich. rich as yeah, fuck. okay, right. Just, no, I'm using that wrong. The, All I mean is like she's not doing what her parents and wanted to. I, I do want to discuss some, some seriously spoilery things on this, which I'll yeah. go into later, but that's mm. it, it all ties back to the title of Thoroughbreds. Yeah. Um, which is really fucking cool. So yeah, um, yeah. So so Olivia Cook plays that kind of like emotionless um, teen, and Anya Taylor Joy plays Lily, who is the prim and proper one that you were describing. Yeah, and I think their two performances really make this film. Yeah, um, because and their chemistry on the screen exactly because you get the initial kind of interaction where. Um, uh, Lily, or I'll use the actress's names because it's easier to keep track of, but <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy is tutoring um, Olivia Cook, Yeah. And it becomes clear quite rapidly that actually Olivia Cook doesn't really need tutoring. She just absolutely doesn't give a fuck about the SATs. studying. Yeah. Yeah, because she's extremely smart. And actually, the reason why she's kind of behind on school and whatever is because there was this incident that happened which disrupted her schooling where um, she killed one of the family's horses right um by slitting its throat yeah and <laughs> that gets explored more over the course of the thing but that's sort of one of the early establishing things is that you you're you're you kind of become implicitly aware that um Anya Taylor-Joy's character knows that Olivia Cook's character did this yeah and is kind of really unnerved by it but not really sure how to tiptoe around it. And so there are these weird conversations that these two characters have yeah. for the whole film. Yeah. And most of the film is Anya Taylor-Joy's character sort of getting to know Olivia's character a bit more and they sort of change each other. But the, I think the it. dynamic unfreezes yeah. quite quickly because it would be <laughs> it would be very tired if it was just like yeah. her being all oh, how off-putting for the whole film. It's yeah. not that. And one of the things that I really enjoy is that um like Anya Taylor Joy's character has this moment where early on in the film she's she plays like I, I would describe it as she acts like a receptionist at a posh hotel. That everything that she everything that she says is hyper polite. Everything that she receives, she receives with like, oh, well, I mean, let me think about how best to uh formulate a proper response to that. It's like yeah. extremely kind of like a um, robot or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it has no emotion behind it. And then um she uh, like Olivia Cook kind of coaxes her into this moment where she's like, can you just tell me what you actually think of me? Yeah. And what happens is, and it's performance done, I think. Like, yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy just, like, sheds all of this shit and decides to kind of stop, just, like, drop the act. She seems, like, just as crazy as the other guy. And she just instantly, <laughs> like, you just see all of the discomfort that comes from her forcing all of that rich upper class shit all the time just like falls yeah. away and she's like you creep me the fuck out <laughs> you're insane like yeah. and it's so cathartic to see someone like just unload that's one thing on that this person i thought was a bit strange about this film was just i didn't really quite believe that these two people would be hanging out because at the start i think like they're hanging out because one of them is uh, one of them is being paid to tutor the other one and yeah. then after that stops after their first meeting neither of them are being paid to be there 
Um, uh, the, I don't think. And it's it's just like, well, why you Anya clearly are uncomfortable says, with each other. It's a fuck around for you to drive to her house. Even logistically <laughs> speaking, I would just, before I even left for her house, be like, you know what? No, I'm staying at home and playing PlayStation. <laughs> like, I just well, don't really see why they're still friends. Anya Taylor-Joy's <laughs> character. So, one of, the thi- one of the things that characterizes Olivia Cook's... The, uh, Maybe I'll, I don't know. The psychopath's character early yeah. on is that she, uh, so Taylor Joy's trying to tutor her and she's just, she's not interested and she's asking, she starts asking questions about why Taylor Joy is choosing to tutor her. Mm. And it kind of, she really quickly uncovers or reveals the fact that she knows that she's being paid by her but mom. She's like playing games and just like trapping her in yeah, lies exactly. and like and, and so just she's toying like, oh, with her really. Well, why that? And then she reveals that like she read the email that she's paid for the lessons. And, um, Whatever it is, yeah. And then uh, the next time, uh, Annie Taylor Joy is like, "Oh, I'm not being paid," and I'm not. I'm still not sure if she was just also lying about that. Yeah. Um. So I. I don't, I don't know because everyone I, in this film is kind of lying well, the the whole time. It seems like the of. premise of the film is that they develop a friendship and start to just hang out for the sake of hanging out. I think, but I just don't. I didn't believe it the whole time. It, like I think she's fascinated by her, and she says yeah. as much. She's no, like, but all the hangout sessions, just specifically again, all the hangout sessions happen at the posh chick's house. So no, no, it doesn't matter if don't. the posh chick is fascinated by the psychopath chick. The psychopath chick still has to get herself to the posh chick's house every single time they want to hang out. That only happens a couple of times. There's, there's definitely multiple times The whole where... film is super low budget. It's all filmed in this one giant mansion house. No, no, no. <laughs> because there's, there's, I, I'm thinking of a, an occasion where... So, like, Taylor Joy goes over to um, Olivia Cook's house and her mom opens the door and it's more background characterization because the mom is like, Hi, did she... Did she do something? <laughs> is, is she... And... and um. Taylor Joyce is like, no, I'm just here to hang out. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. Um, and then she's the, like, it, it, they both walk through to the kitchen window, and uh, Cook is just staring at a bush. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Like, it's a really it's, funny it's, film. Yeah, it's really good. Oscar got a little less out of this than I feel like I did, but this yeah. is actually probably one of my favorite movies. Oh yeah, um, I, mean, I really loved it. I thought there were there were bits that were really funny. I thought the bits that weren't funny weren't really interesting. Like, nah, I got I was a bit bored. Fascinated the whole time. I think part of that came down to like I empathized a concerning amount <laughs> with Olivia Cook's character <laughs> where like she was on screen and I like, was just like I feel no feelings and every time no, I that was like, emotions oh. it's me pretending to <laughs> like ah oh. you know when a character like, so there's a normal character that's her <laughs> yeah. and then there's the rich character who's prim and proper and she's the weird one well they both kind of like I think so getting like not spoilery but getting a little more into the um, middle part of the narrative <laughs> like it becomes fairly clear that um, both characters are a little bit fucked up yeah. and that Taylor Joy is kind of bothering to hide it whereas Olivia Cook is just like fuck. nah why would I do that yeah and um and I think I just when they both kind of reached this point where they were talking about things so candidly there was no um faux uh, uh, properness or like not properness but even like they it, it they were just both speaking their very bottom earnest genuine thoughts. A lot like of the dialogue writing away. felt really natural. Uh, but yeah, and felt. and what they were talking about was just like candid. It was like yeah. there's no they weren't worried about offending the other person. They weren't worried about what the other person would think. They just wanted to speak their own perspectives and really have a genuine response to that and yeah. it was a, a very cathartic performance from both in, in from my perspective on that but yeah i empathize way too much with just that um like that kind of 
like deadened millennial <laughs> perspective um, <laughs> where she's just like, why does everyone bother with everything all the time? <laughs> it's like, Welcome to Dead and Millennials episode 17. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, I, this was also, uh, so a couple of things just general, g- generally more on the dialogue, the performances and stuff. Yeah. Um, this was one of the few films where I felt like uh, millennial culture was reflected in a sense that wasn't embarrassing. <laughs> it wasn't people like texting, OMG. No, it was some of the most genuine kind of like um, this sort of early teen, um, or not early teen, sorry, late teen, early uh, 20s performances that I've seen. Yeah, it was really good. Um, the interaction between two girls, like this passes the Bechdel test as fuck. It's not about yeah. any kind of like really romantic interaction or anything. I guess yeah, we know about the Bechdel test famously. It's got women in it. It yeah, passes the right. Bechdel yeah. test. Um, I just don't think that this becomes about their relationships at any point. Um, so it's no. it's really like... I don't know, these characters felt unique and well fleshed out, but also um, not dependent on their womanhood for kind of being developed, which yeah. is really nice. Uh, Paul Sparks, who plays the right, like the um, author in House of Cards, plays the absolute perfect shithead father-in-law. Yeah, um, step, step, step like, dad, you mean. Oh, sorry, yeah, step, <laughs> step dad. No, father-in-law no, no, is... I was going to no, say, say that's right. not right. Yeah, it's stepdad. stepdad. So he plays the absolute shithead stepdad, um, yeah. and I think he was really perfect for the role. Yeah, like, really at good. one point, she's um, <laughs> there's like this Olivia rowing Cook's machine like, rumble constantly going throughout yeah, every well, that, scene whenever they're in the house. Uh, yeah, the soundtrack <laughs> and the sound is is similarly excellent because he's always on the rowing um, machine to drive them nuts. Yeah, so like um, Anya Taylor Joy's sanity is kind of reflected in this constant, like he's always on the rowing machine. And so a lot of the time you'll just see her face as <laughs> the, sound of as the rowing the machine, rowing machine goes in the background. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like a heartbeat and it's slowly wearing her down. And yeah. she says like, they have a conversation about it at one point, like how much she just hates it. Yeah. Um, so, but he's really good as well. Like he plays this Oakley wearing dickhead. Um, <laughs> it's great. Um, and then there's also, also Anton Yelchin, who is in the uh, remade Star Trek movies. Yeah. Um, he I'd, plays like kind of a drug dealer dropkick. I bet and this is probably one of the last films he was ever in before he passed uh, away. I'm, it actually. might be the last one. Yeah. Um, because this was pretty late. Yeah. And uh, I was um, listening to an interview where Corey Finley and Anya Taylor-Joy uh, speak about his death. And um, Taylor-Joy sort of described uh, Yelchin's character in this one as the, the moral compass of the movie. Yeah. Which is a really interesting... Um, space for the drug dealer character. I think we can to, get um, to occupy. Yeah, I think we can get a bit in the weeds about the plot now that we've talked enough about it. So the spoiler thing here is that the plot of the film is as these sort of uh, two young women sort of find out that they're both a bit fucked up and they're both kind of pretending. Mm. They decide, well, it would solve all our problems if we decide to. Well, I think Olivia Cook is like, why don't you kill your stepdad? Yeah. And um, Taylor Joy is initially repulsed and like kicks her out of the house, and then that idea just gets explored a lot more. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess like the the way that that um, comes to fruition is that you're right. Sorry, they decide to kind of hire Anton Yelchin, who's this black, who's this drug dealer kind of person they've got to know at some party yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, and they blackmail him into killing. 
her stepdad. The stepdad, yeah. So they sort of formulate this plan. That's the main part of the movie. It's them formulating right, right, this right. plan to I convince... I thought you were going somewhere else with it, Oh, yeah. no, no. There's the main part of this plan is they're formulating um, this plan to convince this drug dealer guy, Anton Yelchin, mm. to break into the stepdad's house and kill him. Yeah. And um, about kind of the complications that arise from that. Yeah. And that's the main part of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's definitely like the... the um, yeah, the complication. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he's also like really excellent. Having him as be the moral compass, I found him to be like, um, I really loved the other two characters, just the the, the two girls um, yeah. the most um, because like I felt like their chemistry was so fascinating and interesting to be on screen. But next, I really loved Yelchin's character. <laughs> he's like the third character in the-, like, the Yeah, only I guess. Only- I guess he is, right? Yeah. Um, because there's- This film could have almost been a There's a lot of other stuff that- yeah, it does have that very like um, narrow scope yeah. to it. Um, but, but yeah, I thought it was just really interesting because like he describes um, he he like that they, they see him at a party where he's with all of these other upper class shithead kids. Yeah, well they're not shitheads, but they're upper class. <laughs> yeah, and um, he's like talking to Taylor Joy outside as she's like trying to kind of leave in her car. That was and the he's cool sort of scene holding where her, up. her car window is. Rolled up the whole way, and he gives a speech through the car window while she's inside, and you hear this like muted like, and she's just like li- listening to him, doesn't want to be yeah. so impolite that she drives away, but <laughs> clearly so disinterested in hearing what yeah. he has to say. Um, and like yeah, during that speech, he describes where they live. He says like, "Oh, the hay smells great, but you're still in a hamster cage." Yeah, and um, he's like obviously from a lower socioeconomic background, and he deals drugs, which is like questionably yeah. immoral. <laughs> he keeps having this like he deals drugs to like. Teens. This like beautiful family fantasy about how he's going to provide for his future kids by dealing drugs. Yeah, and he says like, um, everyone's like, why the fuck are you at this party? And he's like, I'm here to provide you with early drug experiences <laughs> that you will value for your entire life. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Um, and it's just really he's a, such a complex character. Like he's got this entrepreneurial spirit. We he, he like says he aspires to be a billionaire. Yeah. Um, and he's talking to Anya Taylor Joy's character, who is far richer than he is. Um, and has never worked a day of it in her life. So, like, he's kind of her economic antithesis where, like, he is... He aspires to be wealthy, but will have to work for that yeah. through immoral means. And she is wealthy without having to work for that and arguably is not the immoral one despite the fact <laughs> that she has the wealth. Yeah. It's 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 a really, really interesting kind of yeah. dynamic that they have. So, yeah, they the, the those two characters pay... Um, or like blackmail, actually, yeah, him into into um, breaking in and, and staging the stepdad's murder to yeah. kind of finally get him out of their lives um, or whatever. Anya Taylor Joy's life, yeah, and uh, and yeah, I don't know. I thought that the the dialogue and, and all of the casting and acting performances yeah. were were absolutely brilliant. I thought um, it was cool. Fitt- fittingly, there were a lot of really close camera work, close ups that I thought added to the interesting nature of the film. So on yeah. top of being like a cool little indie drama comedy, so it was lots of cool close ups. And I thought in the start of the movie, when you were sort of there was like the interview scene between the two girls, um, there were lots of hyper close ups of. Um, you know, like single words on a page in a book, and everything else was like, like lost in the depth, like the narrow depth of field depth of the shot, field, yeah. and like um, close-ups of like a pencil sharpener, and it was all sort of adding to this characterization of this the psychopath uh, chick's character mm. as like sort of hyper focused and totally disinterested in the world around her. Yeah, so the way that that was cool. So that was what I sort of hinted at before about how like the camera work and the interesting cinematography added to the characterization of these characters because you had like 
it was almost like those macro shots with the really narrow depth of field were like her point of view mm. and sort of gave you an insight into like while one character was talking about something very important and sort of giving this very important bit of dialogue the camera would just be sort of focused on like a specific part of the table or whatever yeah 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 um also like a lot of this movie is conversation and yeah. uh it's filmed really well so the the cinematographer was lyle vincent um, who I'm not sure if he's worked on a bunch of other shit, um, but he's he's uh, considering how new Corey Finley is. Um, yeah, I, I think, mean, I think everyone on this is kind of like still cutting their teeth yeah. in the film industry a little bit. Um, and he, the way that he does dialogue is really good. He he films mostly in close-ups, um, in conversations between characters, but sometimes yeah. you'll get like. Uh, other also interesting placement. But I believe it if it's only because they could only use one microphone or something. <laughs> they could only afford one yeah, microphone. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe, but it, it works. Um, so, like, I noticed that at one point in that early interaction that they're having during one of the tutoring scenes, yeah. like, um, I've started to look into the whole, like, rule of thirds for dialogue thing. So, sure. you know, like, the rule of thirds makeup. Yeah. So, if you're doing dialogue, it's useful to have... Um, one character on the far third of the screen and the other character on the opposing far third of the screen, right? Yeah. And you generally just kind of swap between those two things yeah and what he does is he does that at the start but then one of the characters olivia cook's character the psychopathic one becomes really interested in what the other one's saying and she leans forward <laughs> and then what happens is she is in the close third of the screen but then when the camera swaps back to be in the other dialogue position um now anya taylor joy's character is also in the close third of the screen despite the fact that she hasn't leant forward and what it does is it puts them in the same cinematic so space instead of your eyes swaps shots so instead of your eyes ping-ponging back and forth across yeah. the screen when it, sh- when it swaps you're just shots staring in sing- the same spot yeah but That's cool. one I've of those characters of is so interested and i yeah. think that actually kind of summarizes a bit of a power dynamic between the two because when one mm. of them a lot of this is uh, uh, a lot of this movie boils down to olivia cook kind of fascinatedly observing Anya Taylor-Joy's character and just like trying to understand why she does the things that she does. And in that way, even though Olivia Cooke is arguably the more intellectual and kind of predatory, not not predatory, but like the the one that's kind of sitting above and like looking back and watching everything happen. Feels a bit manipulative. Exactly. That's what I meant by predatory. Yeah, that's a much better word for it. She changes a lot less than... Um, Anna Taylor-Joy's character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it, it made it feel like uh, Anya Taylor-Joy had the power in the dynamic because yeah. she she was the one who kind of moved Olivia Cook's character forward but was still moved just by virtue of the conversation dynamic changing. I don't yeah. know. The dialogue, the way that the cinematography of, of the conversation in this movie happened is really good. It felt very natural, but the more you kind of like look into it and break it down, one yeah. of the reasons why it felt so good is because he's choosing these really subtle changes that really have an effect on the way that the dialogue feels. And it's about how the camera work, and that goes the editing and everything, complements yeah. the characterization. There's also a lot of extended really cuts in this and yeah you're, you're totally right and I didn't notice a lot of extended cuts. cuts and a lot of tracking shots where a character will be walking through an environment and the camera will follow them yeah. which works really well following our West Wing theme from last week yeah because a lot of these shots are done in one of those like as you say like a mansion yeah. where you know it, it'll be like uh, she goes and talks to a character who's in the top floor you know Paul Sparks' character will be working on something in his office and yeah. she'll have to go and talk to her mum who's in the basement and the camera will kind of like track her whole journey through the house down yeah. rather than just cutting to her conversation there. Um, also, some interesting stuff with lighting. Uh, like during that basement scene, her mom is in a solarium and uh, the entire 
Um, room is kind of blue lit only by the light of the solarium. So they're having this really like subdued kind of um, conversation where it barely even feels like the mum is responding to what Anna Taylor-Joy's character is saying. And yeah. Yeah, just a really, really beautifully shot film um, that felt uh, far beyond the credentials of the people that were making it. Yeah, I absolutely. really thought this film was brilliant. It was definitely impressive. For a first-time film, I assume. Or for uh, pretty first, much. Yeah. Um, a couple of the actors... I mean, Anton Yelchin is obviously pretty well established. Pretty big, um, yeah. And I think the fact that they got someone who has that backing in the film industry behind them to work yeah. on this film probably indicates its quality. Well, it's the same as like how they, they got... Um, Walking Phoenix to be in You Were Never Really Here. Yeah, it's like it, he's not going to do this if it's if it's small scale and also shit. You imagine it's that, small scale it, and fantastic. Imagine this is the sort of film where they would have sat down with the, the director, writer, or they would have been given the script and be like, fuck, this is awesome. Yeah, this is great. I and want wanted, I want to do this. Wanted to do it, exactly. not been convinced yeah. to do and it. And I think this feels like everyone in this movie really wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, a couple of other things about the like the assembly of the film. Um, yeah. The, the sound is really great in a similar fashion to... Um, you were never really here. I didn't really notice the sound. Yeah, you you said you didn't, but uh, it, I, th- it I, just fact, I noticed a lack choices. of score. Yeah, there was. It's very quiet for a lot of points. And then um, there's lots but- of like diegetic music where, like, for example, they're in like a a hospital nursing home type mm. scene, and there's this like quite peppy pop song that plays on the radio in the background, and then it kind of fades out to sort of just show like how how contrasting that song is to the mood of the characters. And right. I, I thought that like I noticed there was a couple like pop, like not pop songs, but like a couple of like, you know, songs that weren't part of score that were kind of like that um, in the film. Mm. But I didn't necessarily notice any score. Well, so there was there was definitely a soundtrack and I'm not sure if there was a score or not, but yeah. um, the soundtrack I thought was really good. But a lot of the noise that happens on screen is actually like um, kind of these, I don't know how to describe them. It's There's a lot of drums only okay. drums used in the movie. You know how Birdman does a lot of just yeah. drums? Um, it's kind of similar to that, actually. Definitely didn't where, notice that. Yeah, no, there, which which there shows is. that there's different kinds of film score. You can have film scores mm. that actively call attention to themselves and actively contribute to the film yeah. in, a, in a way where you can identify it. And then there are other parts of the film where it subtly complements the film in the background and mm. you don't even notice it. And often that's what they want to go for in a score is it's a, a score that so perfectly blends in with everything else the film is doing that you don't even notice it and it comes out as this like one unified thing. Yeah. Where like you'd be like, oh, the mood in that was great well, and the music definitely plays a huge part of that but you don't even notice it. So yeah. maybe that's one of the, this film was one of those kinds of films. I think so. But uh, And I, I also think that the 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 music in this was very sparse and it yeah. um so often the it would just be a single kind of like few drum beats or um even like a, a kind of like a non-diegetic yell from the artist that's doing the drums yeah. um it it had a very uh natural and i mean that in sort of a f- fucking forest kind of <laughs> setting to it what it did for me was it made it feel very um uh barren and very warlike because there was like right. It was there was drumming and I definitely um, didn't notice this fucking tribal drumming. Uh, I don't know if it was different because I was like sitting in a movie watching a film festival film, so I was yeah, like, okay. looking for everything, and also I was fucking loving it. So I wanted to yeah. kind of drink in every aspect of this movie. Yeah. But um, there's a there's a um, maybe I'll go see it again if it shows in the cinemas over here. There's eventually. a song that uh, I think it won't, but I wish it would. Yeah. Um, if it gets a full release, absolutely everyone that's listening to this go see it. Yeah. But th- th- there's a song in it which is called uh, Sila. 
S-I-L-A, by a group called A Tribe Called Red, which is a Canadian electronic music group that plays in a house party scene in the movie. I thought right, um, up, right up to that very last word, I thought it was that 90s hip-hop guru tribe called Quest. I'm like, oh, baby! No, it is A Tribe Called Red, whose name is an homage to A Tribe Called Quest. Oh, there you go. But they're a Canadian uh, First Nations group. They incorporate a lot of that First Nations influence into their music, yeah, which cool. is obviously a fair bit of drumming and vocal work. I saw you listening to this on Spotify. That is exactly <laughs> what I was listening to, and I've been listening to it since I saw it, because it's such a fucking cool song and I right. feel like if you go and listen to the, the piece that I'm talking about which yeah. again it's Sila by A Tribe Called Red go listen to that that is the that is an electronic piece of music that well reflects what I'm talking about with the sound in this thing it's yeah. a lot of they, they do a lot of breathing as percussion like yeah. <sighs> that kind of stuff you, you guys just illustrate it to your breathing sounds like <laughs> but um, as a beat and uh, and yeah, a lot of this movie is, is, is that, that yeah. um, we, which, we've been talking about this one specific song for a long time and I know we always post it at the end of the episode I just want you to know listen I've already decided what I'm playing and it's not that so <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna try and make you make it this song no. alright well maybe we can so intercut stop, it but. stop describing right. I just want to remind you that there's a lot of cool 50s and 60s pop songs playing the yep. film we started talking about at the beginning of this that's episode that's if fair. you want to just co- co- cast your mind back to those songs we talked about at the beginning of the episode then uh, those might be also interesting to Editor's listen to don't you think yeah <laughs> um, but what I felt like that what I felt like that that the audio choices that they took did was that it made it feel as I said I welcome felt welcome back like, to all the listeners that pause the podcast and then go and listen to that listen song listen to that song yeah <laughs> good point um, I felt like it being it being barren and it having those kind of like um, First Nations war hockey kind of feel to it was that it yeah. contrasted really well with the often this would play while uh, one of the characters was walking through this hyper suburban European western environment yeah. and it just contrasted it so much it made it feel sort of primal in a really interesting way okay. which gets at what I was mentioning earlier which is that theme of thoroughbreds so clearly what this movie is actually about and this is getting into spoilers so uh, ah, we've been talking about it for ages, yeah. Sure, but skip this if you're going to see yep. the film genuinely because it is important. But yep. um, clearly, this is uh, the characters are intended to be a kind of reflection of what happens when you hyper capitalize p capitalize Jesus. people. So when you give them fuckloads of money and then breed and breed and breed and breed and breed, yeah. is that they become these people who are immune to consequence, immune from emotion, immune from their humanity, and they. Uh, don't know how to function in a human society, which is why they see the easiest way to deal with their um, stepfather as killing them. Because what else can you kind of do? So these people are psychopaths because they've never felt consequence or desire or the emotion that comes from kind of struggle or or dealing with shit. Um, And I think that the reason why they've chosen to go with this soundtrack and a lot of the the cinematographical choice and and the overarching storyline is to show that these people are thoroughbreds. These people are are, are, um, elitist. They are consistently bred within themselves independent of greater society as a whole. They're kept removed and protected from that. And they're not reflective of the original species, right? And there's that scene at the end where she breaks her leg and so they take her and melt her down as glue. Yeah. Which is a whole other... (laughs) Uh, As much as that's a joke... Not super far off what happens. Yeah, well, you know. yeah. So I think it's that that's an interesting motif, and obviously one of the horses that Olivia Cook's character kills 
is um, she kills it as a mercy, as an act of mercy, but it's to, and you, you think that it's because she wanted to kill it, but actually it was going to die anyway, and she actually just put it out of her misery because she was willing to do what's not. So in the end, it kind of turns itself on its head, and the most psychopathic character is the one with the most empathy. <laughs> like it, I, It's a weird it, message of this film. Yeah, it is, and and I think yeah. like it's, it's very kind of, when you dig beneath the surface, you look at Yelchin's moral compass, and you look at the way that the rest of the characters interact, it's, it's very anti-capitalist, but it's a really interesting kind of millennial culture character study. Yeah. Um, and I fucking loved this movie. This would be in like at least my top 10. Wrapping up, can you think of films that you could sort of draw a comparison between or any sort of, if we're going to try and do some sort of, this film is better than this, this film kind of reminds me of this kind of kind of ranking system. I liked this more than You Were Never Really Here. Oh. I felt similar... I felt similar emotions watching... Boyhood, maybe, but I think it probably didn't have the same ambition as Boyhood did. So it was kind of neater and simpler, sure. but kind of operates within that scale of like looking at, at a youth culture, but in a way more like it's like Boyhood meets American Psycho. You know, it's like <laughs> that hyper removed, hyper capitalist structure, sure. but still does that character study stuff, which yeah. I thought was really cool. So would you recommend seeing it in a cinema? It seems like you, you definitely, like a, I, it doesn't really seem like a very cinematic, no, spectacular I, kind of film to me, but it sounds fine. like you've got a lot out of watching it and being immersed in it. I think you've got to really focus on it. Yeah, okay. um, so like I, I would, I, I, this is fine to watch on a laptop, um, but maybe yeah. don't watch it, on, you know, on a plane. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, you don't need to go see it in a cinema, but if you have the opportunity to, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe if we if we ever figure it out, it's going to be in the cinemas, listeners. If it's in, you know, in camera, we'll tell at least, you. We'll, I'll tell we'll you. give you a heads up. I'll be a big fucking proponent of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. I think that wraps up the discussions for today. Yeah. Pretty I think much. both of these films definitely worth seeing. Absolutely. If you can definitely go. If you can go see You Were Never Really Here in cinemas, it's got some great sound. Mm. I can definitely go see it. Doesn't sound like you're going to get an opportunity to see Thoroughbreds in cinemas, yeah. but we'll let you know if you can. No Australian release yet. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, a distribution nightmare That's, thing. But yeah. yeah. Should we uh, head into the news? Yeah. Beef Station. Beef Bulletin. Bond 25 is rumoured to be bringing back Neil Purvis and Robert Wade for the new script. Mm. It's the first headline I've got out of the gate here, which um, <laughs> doesn't seem to be much of a surprise once you figure out that these are the guys who've written every single Bond film since The World Is Not Enough up until the present day. <laughs> so they've written all of the Daniel Craig ones so far. Yeah. <laughs> which makes me feel like some ex- oh, it's been a fucking board room. People like, who are we going to get? There's one guy in the back and be like, am I taking crazy pills over here? Yeah. we got these guys sitting <laughs> is in Is anyone listening room. to me? Like, <laughs> they're in the fucking waiting room they're on a fucking retainer (laughs) and so i mean i've got a couple of head articles here and it all seems to be sourcing from the daily mail but it sounds like they've already they already kind of had didn't happen fake news they've already got an approved bond 25 literally the article i'm looking at says according to the daily mail brackets so make of that what you will (laughs) (laughs) they've already got an approved treatment that they're turning into a script so it's literally like they already wrote the fucking movie (laughs) i don't know what the fuck is happening with this movie it sounds like the treatment is like a concept note daddy boyle and his bff busted in with their friendship bracelets and we're like fuck whatever you guys have already got planned we're doing this and then six months later they're like uh no you're not and yeah. so like all right back to plan a like, i don't think that's what's <laughs> gonna work yeah well it does say brings back so i don't even know what yeah maybe they but, were originally working on it but so so here's the fun fact about these about these blokes right so they so they wrote the world is not enough die another day casino royale quantum Solace, skyfall specter and johnny english Oh, that was actually good, though. <laughs> so, the only other film they've... It seems like mostly they've written James Bond movies and a spoof of a James Bond yeah. movie. But... Do you know... Is, are these guys... Do these guys write Johnny English too? No. 
Just, oh. just according to this Wikipedia article, that I've done, no, I don't think so. Just the first one, unless you know, That's unless actually someone a isn't updating their resume, <laughs> unless someone isn't updating the um, <laughs> the Wikipedia page for this very niche pair of writers. No, that someone will be. Oh, yeah, exactly. So that's not, um, not the case. But it made me think about how um, I read some article or listened to some podcast or something where they were talking about how well, the- this guy fucking reads articles <laughs> and listens to podcasts. I only listened to a podcast, and it was ta- <laughs> they were talking about how the Austin Powers films can arguably be credited with the tonal shift in James Bond films yes. and about how they were really goofy and if you go back and watch like a Roger Moore James Bond movie for example they're really fucking goofy and tongue in cheek it's almost like um, like there's literally a film called Octopussy where half of the joke and, and, and <laughs> like one of the there's this characters called like you know Pussy Galore and shit like that and yeah. it's always like winking and like hoo, 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 type like 80s it, it, shit. It reminds me of the um, the Michael Keaton Batman through to Dark Knight trilogy. Exactly. Yeah. And so then Austin Powers comes out and sort of turns up the notch 20%. Yeah. Becomes ridiculous. You guys weren't self aware, but we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, so oh, the, God. But, but then all the James Bond movies after They're that get really fun serious. of us. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, Casino Royale is, like, fucking dark. Yeah. And you watch, like, James Bond. A lot of the, the rest of, of them are. You watch the love of James Bond's life die in front of him, like, in Casino Royale. And, and then it gets darker and darker after that, mm. which I think is really interesting. And so I thought, like, it's funny that, like, these guys, in the same way, They've written all these James Bond movies that are really dark, and then one spoof of a James Bond film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Well, that was probably all of the fucking offcuts that they had, where they were like, wouldn't it be great if we did this? They had it all written then, into the, to, the world probably. is not enough, and then Austin Powers came out. They're like, oh, well, fuck! Or it's just like, you know, as it, it's it's like, um you know, the deleted scenes where they're funny, like, or like um, yeah. outtakes. Yeah, yeah. This was like the outtakes of a James Bond script, and they made it into yeah. Johnny English. So. Johnny English is something. We should do... See, I think it'd be interesting to do an episode on James Bond, even like an episode on whatever the most recent goofy James Bond film was before Austin Powers came out. I don't know what the timeline was or if that even makes sense. Or we could and do then, Austin Powers and Johnny English yeah. and maybe like a James Bond. I think that'd be really interesting to look at mm. and the way in which they those films them. have all influenced each other. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> that's all I've got for that news story. Have you got any news, boy? I do. I've got a couple. Yeah. Um, just some 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 little ones. Um, this is TV, but hey, fuck you. Uh, Westworld has added Aaron Paul to I the cast that. of season three. Aaron so Paul. That'd be I've, super cool. I've only seen him in Breaking Bad and some film about a couple who are both alcoholics, and it was really depressing. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, considering how much Westworld is focused on um, significant Cooking characters meth. being nude on screen, I'm yeah. very happy and excited to see Aaron Paul's dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Billy Piper is directing a movie called Rare Beasts. So oh. Billy Piper of Doctor, um, Who? Doctor Who fame. That was the, the, the best. If uh, you want to, if you want to get companion. into some Doctor Who, I think it's one of those shows start that's with David Tennant. <laughs> no, Christopher Eccleston, season one. So it's, yeah, it's one of those shows that's really let down by its fan base online. I feel like Rick and Morty is like ironically whatever. But the first few seasons of Doctor Who yeah. after it got rebooted are so good. Yeah, the first... The the newest... No. Like Sherlock. Like Sherlock is good, but if you watch anyone on the internet talk about it, you're like, oh, I hate these people now. The first few seasons of Doctor Who are fantastic. So this is Christopher Eccleston. He's the reboot Doctor for like a season, and they get rid of him and do David Tennant. And David the Tennant Christopher is Christopher Eccleston fantastic. season is the best new season of Doctor yeah, Who. And Billy okay. Piper but, yeah. is a character David that Tennant has this great, great emotional arc with the Doctor in that series. Fuck, that's a good series. Yeah, it's a really good, good sequence of episodes. Really that whole that whole arc. So that was already going on, but David Thewlis, who has played, Bless you. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, David Thewlis has been in heaps of shit, but he's also been in Fargo, 
and he plays the main antagonist in in the Fargo series in season three. Right. Um, he's fantastic. Oh, he was in Harry Potter. We've talked about this guy. He was in Harry Potter um, as that professor. That if you I could just turn know. around the laptop and show me He's a Lupin. photo he of He plays this Lupin in Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Lupin from Harry Potter has just joined uh, Billy Piper's new movie, Rare Beasts. Right, okay. I think we learned more so, about Doctor Who and Harry Potter and that little story yeah. there. But Actually, <laughs> seriously, season three of Fargo is fucking great. Go watch that. David Thewlis plays an incredible villain. I haven't even seen any of Fargo. Is season one of Fargo good? All of it's great. Dude. Yeah? Do you have to watch uh, the movie first? No. Is it related to the movie? Uh, no. No. But it's called... And also, there will be actors in Fargo that you that will pop up on screen and you'll be like, holy fuck, they're in Fargo? <laughs> like, I know Martin Freeman's in Fargo. Yeah, and um, Ewan McGregor. Plays, oh, yeah, yeah. An and he does, like a whole, he does the whole accent. Yeah, it's, yeah. He's, he's fan- he plays two characters in Fargo. <laughs> um, anyway, so army, yeah. He army hammers it, does he? I'm, uh, I'm excited for that. Uh, he, um, Eddie Murphy's it. <laughs> uh, and the other one is, oh yeah, related to the first bit of news, um, yep. Saeed Tagmoi, who I've definitely mispronounced the name of, uh, <laughs> Sorry, is cast as the newest James Bond villain. Wow. So, Show me a photo of this guy. Riveting if you're only getting the audio. But this is the first piece of actual James Bond uh, news we've ever had. Everything else has been like, it's rumoured that some fucking guy is hired to do something on the film. So I'm checking what else he's been in. He's a French-American actor who was in... Oh, he's in Wonder Woman? Okay, he's been in G.I. Joe. So he's been in a bunch of like Marvel movies, some Conan the Barbarian shit. So he's actually done a fair bit. Okay, okay great. Interesting. I do not recognise him at all, which nah, might neither. be an asset. Because okay, it's always great. nice when you get a James Bond actor that isn't... Oh, he's in American Hustle. He's been in a lot of stuff, actually. All wow. right. Well, there you go. Cool. So, he's the, new, you. he's the new James Bond villain. Um, for now, I'm absolutely positive they'll drop him, hire someone else, <laughs> drop them, and then hire who is actually going to be the villain in this movie before it even starts filming. Slash after it starts filming and is released. Yeah. I so. look forward to Peter Dinklage being cast as James oh, Bond. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Well, that's all yeah. my news. Right. Well, that's a bit of a sparse news segment Sweet. this week, but I think it's been a bit of a bumper episode. Thanks for joining us. I think next week we're going to tackle another listener suggestion. We managed yeah. to source some uh, some old Western films. If we can get off our heinies and <laughs> roll through all of those this week, look forward to that episode next it's week. It'll be a triple ep. A trap. For <laughs> space and time. <laughs> star trap. <laughs> Fuck, that is absolutely what we should name It's star trap. We'll go on forever. (laughs) Oh, God. Thanks for joining us. I've been Oscar. I'm Andrew. Have a good week. Tonight, I'm going to be reading aloud some fan fiction that I wrote about my character sucking 
Uma Thurman's toes in the Pulp Fiction universe, despite the fact that, in canon interactions, they never actually meet. That doesn't matter to me, and I feel like the emotional connection that those two characters have is far more important than whether or not they actually meet in the show, alright? And, and plus, really, this is more for me than it is for you, so we're just gonna let this one happen, okay?